0: Well, good morning. Boy, what a beautiful socially distanced crowd here this morning filling up this place and uh, Labor Day weekend and fires going everywhere and uh, hot as Dickens, I'll tell you what, man. So thank you for coming. and for those online, we always want to let you know how grateful we are. We know you could have been doing a lot of other things this morning, but you are live streaming with us, whether you're across the country or in some cases we have folks that are listening in the Philippines and other places. We just thank you, love you, and we want you to know everybody here just loves you. Thank God for our online family And I know if you weren't in a distance or maybe medically unable, you would be here. And uh, someday you will be, and we're looking forward to that. So thank you for joining. We love each one of you, and I hope that you'll make sure that you continue to watch. And I know this much, if you just happen to turn in, and uh, it is not an accident, because I prayed that God would just touch you, and that you would uh, follow along, and that you would become involved. And so thank you for watching this morning. We are talking about living a faithful life, a faithful life. Now this morning, the maximum in faithfulness. Throughout the incredible history of God's church triumphant around this world for the last 2,000 years, the record is undeniable that a faithful but persecuted church is a strong church. How strange, and yet how wonderful that a persecuted church, a faithful church, becomes such a strong message for Christ. Our dear missionaries in Eastern Europe have uh, told us uh, how that they have heard firsthand. We as a church have heard firsthand from our wonderful pastor brother there in Kiev. uh, And uh, he came and told us how that when he was a child, The government would not allow Bibles to be read out in public, or in some cases would confiscate Bibles from children while they are at school. Oh, hmm, they do that now in our public schools. And they confiscate it from these children so that they won't read that dangerous book. Because according to the Stalin and Marxist uh, thought process that religion was, uh, would eventually hurt the government. It would uh, keep them from their scientific, quote, scientific venture. And so, uh, and if you read my article this week, uh, you saw from the article, which that part of the article I didn't write, but though historians have told us that they would take Christians like you and I, and Baptists, Pentecostals, others, they would take them and if they did not recant, if they did not uh, choose to follow the militant uh, atheism, that they would take them. In some cases, uh, they would ban them from church. They would uh, put so many restrictions on church. Uh, they, uh, it is estimated they killed over uh, 2,000 pastors during that season. It wasn't too long ago, friend. I mean, we're only talking a few decades ago. Uh, they would kill them, uh, or they would uh, put them in mental... Uh, asylums because of course that they're demented if they would believe that they took their children away so that the state could uh, raise them folks that is what happened over the last uh, eighty years or so in uh, Eastern Europe and in Russia and those areas And now the church has come back with such excitement. There is such a genuineness, and I have been there in those services, and I will tell you, you could preach for two hours, and they would just sit there. Now, they don't say anything, (laughs) I will tell you that, but they are excited about their faith, even though they don't look it. They are thrilled about their Bibles, and they are such genuine, amazing Christians. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today in Revelation chapter 2, is about a church like the Eastern European Church. It's about a church known as the church in Smyrna who was faithful unto death. We are talking about the maximum in faithfulness. Now I believe there are marks of faithfulness. We've seen those. We have a model for faithfulness. We saw that in Christ. We saw that in so many great Bible characters. But today, there is a maximum. I do not hope I would, I, I, I trust. I should say, I hope not that any of us would have to pay the ultimate price for our faith. But God is asking us: Will you? Are you willing? It uh, in American history, we have had such a good run as Christians. We've had such great freedom, and I hope that that will continue through the generations to come. But I will tell you, it is no guarantee. In fact, if history teaches us anything, it would probably suggest that it won't be that way, that we are going to have to be ready to pay the ultimate price. Are we? Are we and will we say, I will stay faithful even unto death? This church of the seven churches in Revelation was one of the only two that God didn't have anything negative to say about. And so we're going to look at this wonderful church, the maximum in faithfulness. Let's all bow forward a prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. I thank you for this passage. It gets inside of my brain, Lord. It's got inside of my spirit. It's got inside of my very DNA, Lord, as I've been thinking about it and reading about it and praying all week long. Thank you for these faithful saints of God, Lord. I could just tell you this church, many people, Lord, just like these dear people in Smyrna, thank you for the church. Thank you for uh, the faithfulness, and I 'll thank you for what you're going to do in our midst today. Amen. All right, let 's go to Revelation chapter two, please, Revelation chapter two. let 's uh, read that together uh, out loud, and I think it's good to uh, hear it with your own voice. The Bible says faith comes by hearing the Word of God. so let's uh, hear the Word of God. All right. So Revelation chapter two and verse eight. We'll be reading through verse 11 from the King James Version. All right, ready, begin. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now usually when pastors mention revelation, (laughs) immediately our minds think about judgment day. And no doubt there is lots of judgment, or really maybe a a better word is justice. There's a lot of justice uh, just recorded in the book of Revelation. And yet this particular chapter gives us a wonderful bookend about what God, the plans he has for the faithful, not just for evil, but for the faithful. God promises here a hope. There are two churches that God just spoke glowingly about And even the ones that had some problems, uh, several of those had some strengths as well. But in chapter two, we have the church of Smyrna and in Revelation chapter three, the church of Philadelphia. In this passage, the church of Smyrna in chapter two, God divides this little passage, I think, into three uh, distinct loving cautions. And so if you're following along and if you want to, and I do recommend you get that app or if you're a writer and you're writing them down, just make sure you uh, have it there. You know, I've noticed, and some people tell me, that they go back over their sermons a year later or several years later, and they get blessed again because they remember the things. I, in my Bible, uh, I use an electronic Bible all the time now, but you used to have, a, and I'd even put little dates there, things that uh, just were such a blessing. So uh, write in your Bible. It's not sacrilegious or write down. But to get it in your mind. All right, number one, our first caution. God gives us a foreknowledge. He's just gonna give us a little heads up about what's happening in verse number eight. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write these things, say at the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. The church in Smyrna. Now much of Revelation, as you know, is very symbolical. It is lots of signs. And uh, sometimes he explains those, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes the explanation takes place in other parts of Scripture. We just have to kind of extrapolate it in. But in this case, uh, we might wonder, well, was this a real literal church? And the answer is yes. Smyrna was an actual city. It's an actual city in uh, uh, northwestern Turkey today, right uh, Near the coast, uh, there, almost on the coast. And when we look at these churches, we know that these are very real churches, very real cities, but they are also symbolic. And there's no doubt that that's part of this passage as well. There is a symbolism involved here. Notice that there are seven churches, uh, and seven is the number for completeness in Scripture. And so we're looking at a complete look of the church. And in these seven churches, we see lots of wonderful strengths, and sadly, we see some weaknesses as well. It's meant to help us understand the things that we're going through and what kind of church we should be. It helps us know when church gets things right, Hallelujah. And when we get it wrong. And sometimes we do, we get it wrong. I no, I certainly have. But it says here to the church, or excuse me, to the angel, at Smyrna. Who is this angel? The angel, well, the Greek word there just means messenger. Now, as much as I would like to uh, claim being an angel, it's just meaning the pastor really here. And it's saying that so God uh, hand-delivered after John wrote it down, then he uh, gave it to some messengers, these messengers went throughout to Asia Minor, Turkey today, went to these different cities, and here he comes to Smyrna. He knocks on the door of the pastor, and he says, Pastor, here is a message from God. Now it's from Jesus. He spoke it to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke it to John. John wrote it down, and then he gave it to these messengers to deliver to the pastor. The pastor then would speak it to the people. Now let's talk a little bit about Smyrna for just a moment because it does play into understanding the passage. Smyrna was, uh, was a quite a little city, not a huge city, but uh, for some reason it had become a center of the emperor Domitian. Domitian was the Caesar during this particular season. He uh, was uh, widely looked at as a a very uh, important fellow. He was uh, not one of their better Caesars, uh, but uh, in fact, uh, most Caesars would uh, make sure that after they died, they would be thought of as deity. But uh, Domitian came to the point where he felt like everybody should consider him to be deity before he died. And so he actually made people call him Theo in the Greek language. And so Theodomitian, and uh, in fact, you'll see different uh, uh, designations. I think one of them is DM, and that's uh, Domitian Maximus, meaning he is God, he's the maximum Lord. And he would make people call him Lord. In fact, that is one of the issues, and that's why this church is persecuted, because he made everybody say that the government is Lord. The government is my Lord. I will do whatever they say. I will do whatever the emperor says. And these dear saints of God who were sweet people, they were not rebellious, loud-mouthed, marching, crazy people. These were mostly an agrarian lifestyle. They uh, loved just to tend their sheep or to, you know, go out and plant their crops and get up in the morning and be with their family and cook some bread and work during the day and come home and play with the children and uh, speak with their wife. They had a very wonderful pastoral lifestyle. They loved it. They were uh, just enjoying life and yet this emperor was making life miserable for them because he made them say, I am Lord. And in fact, In close by Ephesus, they actually today, you can go, and find ruins where they have made Domitian the Lord God. In fact, you may remember, I don't know if it was last Sunday or the Sunday before, I talked about Polycarp. Polycarp, known as maybe the last of the early um, martyrs who actually knew some of the apostles, uh, he was from Smyrna. And so here they are. They had uh, they had this uh, they had quite a situation they were in. And so this message is given to the pastor. He's standing before the people in church. These are some hurting people. These are an oppressed people. Uh, Many of them are slaves. Their hearts are hurting. Uh, Some of wives have lost their husband. The husband's been dragged off, put in chains, and put in some cellar somewhere. Some have been killed. This was a hurting church, and. I'm sure many of them were thinking about bolting, saying, I'm not even going. I'm not even going to be part of church. It's too much trouble. So what it says here in verse 8, unto the angel, to the pastor, tell him, speak to the pastor. And sometimes God speaks to the pastor and first. Sometimes he speaks to others first. But it says, these things saith the first and the last. And so here we find Jesus, of course, the is referring to himself as God. We know that because this is the same phrase as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. Who does something like that? Who can say from the beginning to the end? Who can look at everything and say, I started, I ended, I'm alpha, omega. Who does something like that? Well, the prophet said, I am the Lord, the first And with the last, I am he. Here we find Jesus repeating that same phrase. That's no accident. Jesus is saying, I am God. I am God in the flesh. You can trust these words. Hear me. Thus saith God. I am faithful God. I call the beginning and I call the end of something. And that's what he's saying. And I am glad that God is in charge of everything and that he's faithful. (laughs) I'm glad God never calls in sick. God never had to have a mental health day, amen? we got to love those mental health days. i tell you what, I, some people tell me I'm, I'm, ha- I'm taking a mental health day. I said, really? Man, you get paid for that? Wow. And uh, it, But God's never taken a mental health day. And here we find God giving us his background. And in case we we're wondering, he said, just in case you're wondering, I am the first and the last. I can call something at the beginning. I can call the end of something. By me, all things are kept together, and by me, all things are destroyed. And then he adds another point of his uh, credibility. He said, not only am I the first and the last, but he said, I was dead, but now am alive. I was dead, but I'm alive. Now, why would God tell somebody, I was dead and I'm alive? Now, of course, this is Jesus, uh, God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one, distinct, and yet uh, they uh, all have a very wonderful ministry to us. But God the Son became flesh, and in that he died. Now I know uh, secular humanism and socialism, and I know the universities say God is dead. A few years ago, there was a wonderful Christian movie out, God is Not Dead. And He's not dead. But the university want to tell us that God is dead. Here is Jesus saying, I know some say I'm dead and stayed dead, but I tell you, I am alive. Now, why is He saying that? Because just as we sang a few moments ago to encourage us that no matter how dead things are, God can bring them back to life. And God can literally bring us to life. And In the event that some of you have to die, it's not permanent; it's just temporary. That's what he's trying to remind them. Now, there's an interesting note here. I think we ought to look at, and that is the name Smyrna itself. The name Smyrna, or the the name of the city, is actually from the word myrrh, as you might see while you're looking at that myrrh. Now, you've heard the word myrrh. Myrrh is a a shrub, a thorny shrub. It is. there in the middle east by itself it doesn't look like much by itself it doesn't do much it's just a shrub but when you take it and you crush it it is so aromatic it is so strong and sweet that they would actually put it on dead bodies to keep away the stink because they didn't have the normal refrigeration that we have you know to put dead bodies on and so they would put this uh, myrrh on it You may remember that in John chapter 19. They put myrrh on the body of our Savior. It is also not only aromatic, but is it amazingly valuable. You may remember that the magi in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men as we call them, they came from the far east and they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh was only usable when it was crushed. I think it's easy to see the parallel then for us. We, as God's people, become valuable. We become so beautiful when we're crushed. And when a life is crushed, a godly, faithful life is crushed, that's when it becomes so usable. That's why God is saying here, hey, church of a crushed shrub, hey, church that is uh, uh, being uh, pressured, I want you to know you are valuable, valuable. And you are a wonderful sweet smell for the Lord. And then in verse number 9, he continues this uh, heads up. I know your works. I know your tribulation, the tough times, the poverty, parentheses, but you're rich. (laughs) He doesn't want anybody dwelling on that for even a second. Don't think about how poor you are. And I'm sure there were a lot of very poor slaves because... Uh, The Christians were not allowed the better jobs, and they were put off. And he said, "Uh, but I want you to know you're rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Notice what it says, I know thy works. How does he know our works? Because he's watching. If you remember back in Revelation chapter 1, we see this wonderful description of Christ. Remember his hair is white, and... It says, his eyes are as a flame of fire, meaning these are holy eyes that see everything. And where are his eyes? His eyes are on the church. It says, I know thy works. (laughs) I know. I'm watching. I wonder how we would do life different if we looked up and saw Jesus watching us. I wonder if we would watch something different or do something different or act in a different way, if we looked up and saw Jesus with eyes of fire watching, it says, I know thy works. I am watching everything. His eyes are on his church. Jesus is watching. I love to tell the story. I've told it several times. I tell it whenever I can. It makes me laugh every time. Jesus is watching. A thief broke into the house one night, and his goal, as every thief, was to take something small and valuable. He was searching through the house when he heard a small voice. Jesus is watching you. He stopped for a moment, said to himself, man, what was that? Must be a voice from my old Sunday school days. So he just continued on, uh, forgot about it, began searching. About five minutes later, he heard the voice again. Jesus is watching you. He turned the flashlight in that direction and saw a parrot over there. And he said to the parrot, what is your name? The parrot said, Moses. The robber mocked him and said, what kind of crazy people would name their parrot Moses? The parrot looked at him and said, the same people who named a pit bull Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is watching you. And if you're stealing, I want to let you know that Jesus, the pit bull, is watching. Thank God Jesus is watching. Amen. He's watching. I know thy works. Look at that statement. I know thy works. That doesn't just mean he knows it as a sense of information, but he knows. From personal experience, he knows. (laughs) There's never a time that any of us have gone through anything where Jesus can't say, I know. Pain, I know. Heartache, I know. Betrayal, I know. Loneliness, I know. Poor, I know. People just hurting you to anything, I know. Anything we've gone through or will go through, Jesus always says, I know. I have been there. And I can give you personal experience that that's true. I have never gone to Christ in my prayer. I have never come away without Him refreshing my heart, saying, I know. How many times when I've just poured out my heart broken hearted? I mean, just, I can't even, just so broken hearted. Just can't even breathe, can't even eat, can't even think. <laughs> just broken hearted. But I have never gone to Jesus when he didn't just say, I know. I know, friend. I know my loved one. And so here he is, the pastor is speaking to this church saying, sister, God knows. I know your heart is breaking with your husband gone now. I know, brother, your heart is breaking with going on in your family. Or I know you can't supply for your family like you'd like to. They're taking your money. They're hurting you. Whatever the case, I know. I know your tribulation. There's that big word. We're not talking about the great tribulation. We're talking about, actually, the word is pressure there. it's The Greek word is pressure. He said, I know the pressure you're under. I know what you're going through. And I want you to know, uh, I know. And uh, isn't it wonderful that someone knows what we're going through? And I think it'd be nice if we would maybe be a little more understanding and a little more merciful of what people are going through. I've had a, I tell you what, I'm so blessed. I have such good, had so many people uh, say sending so nice things about our ministry, about me, and I appreciate it. Occasionally though, we get a uh, something a little bit negative, or I get something negative on a personal level, and and uh, I remember telling one friend, uh, one person, I said, you know, uh, just a little bit of mercy here, would be helpful, you know, just because someday you might be going through the same thing. I just want to just want to warn you, you know, I know you're I got your opinions, but uh, someday you may be going through the same thing. The famous quote is uh, very true often true, I should say, and that is never criticize another until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. Now, Jesus has walked in our moccasins. I think typically it's more like what the comedian Steve Martin says. He said, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and you'll have his shoes too. And I think that's more usually what we do, isn't it? We don't really uh, walk in a person's shoes, but I want to want you to let you know Jesus has walked in our shoes. He's walked a mile in our shoes. He's walked 10,000 miles in our shoes. He cares. He knows. Then notice what he says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. Now, there are two Greek words for poverty. One is a, meaning just uh, having your basic needs, but uh, you... Uh, but you're not just destitute. I mean, you just have the basics. That's not this word. This word means absolutely nothing. He said, "I know you have nothing. I mean, nothing." And I, well, Pauline, my precious wife, and I've been in a few huts of these saints, uh, beautiful Christian people in, in that island of Vanuatu. And I mean, when I say nothing, I mean nothing. <laughs> I mean, not even a blanket, not even a pillow. I asked the missionary. I said how do they sleep? He said, they just put their head on their arm. I said, man, I would i would never be able to walk if I woke up in the morning lay laying on that. It was just like that, you know, and no pillow, no nothing. And they didn't have a closet, didn't have a chair, didn't have any clothes. I mean, they had nothing. You talk about hand to mouth. Every day, it was just what I can have. And yet, they were so happy in the Lord and they were so grateful just that we came to visit them, dear saints of God. They are poor. Jesus said to these saints, you are poor, but I want you to know you are rich in God. You are truly and really rich. You know, we've seen how this works in the world. We've watched it oftentimes right before our very eyes, people who have what would seem like everything and yet are miserable. Ernest Hemingway once said the words, I am miserable. And these people who wear their Prada and drive their Lamborghinis and get on their big yachts, and it's not fun to be poor. It's not fun to even ha- be without, and especially when you see some people having so much. But Jesus said, just remember, you have so much. You have so much. You are rich. You are rich. We look at the Marilyn Monroes and the Elvis Presley's and the Princess Di and the Robin Williams and the Michael Jackson's, and we look at them with all of they have just miserable, absolutely miserable marriages that are just grieving, children that are disrespectful, no purpose in life. I'll tell you one thing you talk about riches, just look around you, and if you see your children serving God, your sons and daughters, that is rich. You see your grandchildren serving God? That is rich. Just get a hug from little Anastasia. You talk about rich. That is rich. When she throws her arms around you, if you've never had a hug, get a hug from little Anastasia around here. She will, she will just make you feel like you are a zillionaire. I mean, you couldn't even have enough money to pay for that right there. And that's what God is saying. He said, I know You're going through it, but I want you to know, despite what you're going through, truly you're rich because you're valuing spiritual things. And then he gets really very straightforward here, no pulling any punches. He said, I know the blasphemy of those that say they are Jews that are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Blasphemy? Now, some people think that word is reserved for, you know, just these real, you know, terrible, terrible things, like, you know, some of this terrible sin that we see in the world. But right here, it's actually talking about a religious group. What? God is saying, you are blasphemous. And he is pushing, he is telling anybody who pushes against Christ, against the Bible, against the gospel, they are blasphemous. Notice what he says even. And one of the most shocking statements in the whole Bible, get this in your mind. He's saying they are members of the synagogue of Satan, church here are some religious people who are part of the church of Satan, yet they think they're doing so good. What? That's some, this is not some crazy uh, conservative Baptist preacher you know, blowing off smoke. I'm going to tell you, this is Jesus himself who is stepping on some serious toes here. Look what he's saying. He is saying, they say they're Jews, but they're not Jews. Because as he says in Romans 2 and verse 28, he is not a Jew who's one outwardly. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. You may have a Jewish name. You've been born in Jerusalem. You may be lived all your life in Israel. But if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a real Jew. Now, I'll tell you one thing. That little statement right there get me kicked off of YouTube and everything else. But I will tell you that is true. That is absolutely true, and if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not a Jew. You are not a true Jew. You have to believe in Jesus for your salvation, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I know that you are enduring these secular pagans, this religious, this this Greek mindset and the Roman government, and in addition to all that, then you also have to put up with the Jewish people. Turkey at that time, even today, had a lot of transplanted Jewish people. But he said, they're not really Jewish because Jewish people, true Jewish people, have had a change of the heart, as Romans says. They have circumcised the heart. They've cut away the old man. And when Christ is in you, you are a spiritual Jew. And We all know that we've been grafted into the Jewish nation when you get born again. I I know you think my name is Pollock, but it's really Pollockenstein. That's my name, Abraham Pollockenstein. That's what I really am to God because I am part of that spiritual uh, nation. That's what God is saying here. Thank God for his foreknowledge. Thank God for a little perspective. It's been said that a right perspective makes the impossible possible. Thank God for his foreknowledge. Now let's go to number two, the second point. Not only a foreknowledge, but a forewarning. Verse number 10, first part of of that. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Things are coming. (laughs) Things. Things. Don't fear the things. There's all kinds of things coming your way. Aren't you glad God doesn't just stand up there with a big smile and saying, you're never going to be sad. You're always going to be happy. You're always going to have a great life. Oh, he tells it like it is. He said, folks, things are coming. I don't want them to, and I don't like it, but it's a fact. Things are coming, and yet don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, he's not talking about sensible fear. There are things that we are to be afraid of. Some of our Dear people in our church who have gone up to Lodi, northern Lodi, have gotten, went to that little airport there, have paid good money to get on a plane to go way up in the air and then jump out of that perfectly good plane. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. I am afraid of that, and I think that's very sensible, and nothing wrong Be afraid of that. Now, by the way, just a footnote here. Isn't it strange that according to our government, our California government, that is very acceptable, But sitting in a nice, clean auditorium singing, that's very risky. But anyway, in John chapter 16, verse number 33, Jesus said, don't fear these kind of things. These things have I spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. You shall. As long as you're living, you're going to have trouble. Trouble in the flesh, trouble in your mind, trouble in your emotions, trouble in your marriage at times, trouble in your... Uh, finances trouble. I mean, just going down to the grocery store trouble at the bank and trouble at work. And God said, you're going to have trouble as long as you live in this world, but have a good attitude, be of good cheer. And some of us could get a good dose of that. Amen. We need to get a good attitude, be of good cheer, be encouraged because I have overcome the world. I love what the brilliant commentator, Matthew Henry said about this. He said, you know, It's a crazy thing as Christians. Men persecute them because they're so good, and God corrects them because they're no better. (laughs) We get it from both ends. God says, be of good cheer. Keep your attitudes up. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I have got Satan under my feet, and so do you. Now, let's go back here to uh, this verse, uh, verse uh, number 10. It says, the devil will cast some of you into prison. It's going to happen some of you. Have you ever wondered why it is where some people seem to suffer so much and others don't? It's actually true. Of course, what I've noticed about that is it seems like they suffer at different times. We're looking around us now thinking, boy, I feel bad for that church and that church is going through so much suffering. Well, we've had some suffering and we probably will in the future, but for now it's their season. Notice what it says, some of you will be cast into prison. Not all of you, some of you. For whatever reason, God's sovereign purpose, some are cast into prison. Why? It's not without a purpose that ye may be tried, meaning tested. It's a purpose behind it. You go to a doctor and the doctor says, I need to run some tests on you. And then he gets a needle out and he said, this is going to pinch a little and i will tell you every time a doctor says that i look at him thinking you are lying to me it is that is a code word for this is going to knock your socks off it is not going to pinch it's going to hurt i know that that's what god is doing here god is a good doctor saying this is going to pinch you a little there's a reason for it though i'm running some tests and these tests are going to uh, reveal some things in luke chapter 22 peter said excuse me jesus said to peter satan has desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Peter, Satan's coming after you. He asked if I could have permission, if he could have permission to, to persecute you. Peter said, well, what'd you tell him? I told him, go on ahead. What? Go on ahead? Why would you do such a thing? He said, because I wanted to prove to Satan, and I wanted to prove to every demon, and every principality, and to every generation, that you can sift them, but you'll never have them. He said, because I prayed for you that your faith would fail not. Folks, that's a good word right there. That's why God made uh, Peter go to the doctor, and the p- doctor said, this is going to pinch you a little. Man, this hurts. But God said, I needed to run some tests so that everybody could know just how beautiful salvation is. When you get saved, it's forever. It'll never fail. I tell you what, it's indestructible. A few months ago, I had to laugh Everybody's been uh, all excited about these Tesla cars, and everybody's getting a Tesla car. And the uh, the big president there, uh, Musk, uh, he designed a new Tesla truck, and he said it is indestructible. It can't even you can't even break anything on it, and so he had his the, they had a big press conference. I don't know if you saw it there. Big giant press conference, cameras rolling. He was trying to show that you could take a hammer to the side of that truck. You could take a steel ball and throw it at the window. I mean, just bounce off. So that guy took a steel ball and threw it at that uh, window of that truck, and the window broke. (laughs) He let out some explicatives and said, what happened? And uh, I thought, you know what, that's just, that's mankind right there. It's indestructible. Well, I guess it's not. But when God says our salvation will never fail, you can take that to the bank. And that's what he's saying there. Now, a foreknowledge, a forewarning, we must uh, hurry a forearming. And I know I created that word, but uh, others have too, so we're going to use it. Verse uh, 10 in part B, God said, now you want some weapons? Look at these weapons. I'm going to forearm you. For Fear none of these things. Don't fear the things. They're coming, but don't fear them. The devil's going to cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Notice three uh, aspects about our forearming. First of all, it is a limited circumstance. First of all, it will be not for everyone. It's limited. Some of you into prison. Aren't you glad God knows who can take what? I love what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Brother, dear brother Paul was having a tough time. He was in prison. His friends, many friends, had been hurt. And then in chapter 2, verse 27, it says, For indeed he was sick night. He's talking about Epaphroditus. He said he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. God raised him up. Hallelujah. But God also had mercy on me, not on him only, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul said, I'm just, God knew I couldn't take it. Have you ever said, I don't think I could have taken that? It's probably true. God, in his mercy, said, okay, I'm not going to put you through that. There have been times when I said, I can't take it, but God says, no, you're going to take it. But there are times in God's mercy that He just says, you know what, I'm going to limit it. And that's what He says here in this this verse. He says, some of you into prison. It's a limited circumstance. Not only will it not be for everyone, but secondly, it will not be forever. It's for 10 days. Now, many commentaries and many students of Revelation have said, oh, 10 days, you know, 10 is the symbol of, you know, the world. And it's a, no, I think probably just means... Some of them were cast into prison for 10 days, or it just means a very short time. I think the point being is that nothing for the believer lasts forever. No adversity lasts forever. How many want to say amen to that this morning? Amen. Amen. Folks, no matter what adversity, it won't last. It may last a long time, but it will not last forever. It may seem like it'll last forever, but even if you are permanently disabled, for example, it doesn't last. As a believer, a change is coming. Johnny Erickson Tada, famous Christian writer, wonderful Christian woman, a, uh, wrote, uh, here's this precious, vibrant, strong woman of God. Uh, who became a quadriplegic after a tragic accident. She was uh, at a Christian woman's conference. She was in the restroom, uh, break. One of the women's, and this is her own words, she said, a woman was close to me putting on her lipstick and said, oh, Johnny, you always look so together and so happy in your wheelchair. I just wish I had your joy. Several women around her nodded. How do you do it? The woman asked as she put the cap on her lipstick. She said, I don't do it. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? This is my average day. She said, I took a deep breath and said I would share it with her. After my husband Ken leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. And that's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, oh Lord, my friend will come in soon and I don't have the strength to face this day. This routine, one more time, I don't think I can take it. I don't have any resources. Lord, I don't have even a smile to bring into the day, but you do. May I have your smile, God? God, I need you desperately. The lady in the restroom said, well, then what happens when your friend comes through that bedroom door? She said, I turn towards her and I give her a smile straight, sent straight from heaven. It's not my smile it's god's friends not their circumstances don't last forever even if we're permanently disabled it is going to change it will change when we get uh, taken to heaven or when heaven comes and takes us home it will be great god is forearming us not only is it a limited circumstance but notice a lavish compensation be thou faithful unto death and i will give thee a crown of life faithful unto death. What does that mean? Faithful to the Word. I believe the Bible in its entirety. I believe Leviticus just as much as I believe the Psalms. I believe Deuteronomy just as much as I believe the book of Romans. I believe the Bible. I am faithful to the Word. I am faithful to Christ. I am faithful to the gospel. I am faithful to church. Faithful. God says, be faithful. Be faithful and be faithful to death. Nothing's I just made it my decision. I'm going to be faithful to death. Friends, make that decision. If you haven't made it, just make it. Say, God, by your grace, I purpose the rest of my life to serve you. This is no, you know, I'll check it out for 30 days. You know, I hear about all these 30-day programs or 60-day programs or 90-day programs or whatever. Whatever. Folks, I'm on a lifetime program. I'm a lifer. I love the Word of God, and I love my Savior, and I love church. I'm I'm in it for life. I've been doing it a long time, and I want to be faithful to death, to the death. First, we see the sureness of the reward, the beautiful sureness of the reward. I will give thee. I will give thee. God's hand himself gives us the reward. He doesn't let anybody give it to us other than him. It's like when our president will give a medal of honor to somebody or uh, he personally gives them that medal. And Here he's saying that God says, I will give it to you. If, if God gives it, then nobody can stop it. Amen. No enemy can come against it. No, whatever. I love the story of the lady who came to customs and she had been traveling and she had spent a little bit of money, or quite a bit of money, on some small um, small amount of uh, cheese, but it was very pricey. And she came through customs and customs said, Ma'am, you're, you're not going to be able to bring that in to the country and uh, back into, your, into the country. And she said, uh, but I, she said, This is very expensive. And they kind of got into a little tiff with each other and she looked at that government officer and said, I'm going to tell you right now, I am bringing this in. He said, ma'am, you are not bringing that cheese into the country. I promise you, you you will not. You are not passing through this gate with that cheese. She said, I am. I tell you, I am. And she took that cheese out, opened her mouth, and she ate it. She said, I'm coming into that country with my cheese. And, uh, you know, their government can say a whole lot, but I want to tell you one thing, folks, they can't, they can't do it all. And here we will remind ourselves that God says, I personally, no enemy is going to keep the reward from you. I'm personally going to do it. The sureness of the reward. And then second of all, the suitableness of the reward. It's a crown of life, a crown of life. That means it's not a, it's not a big crown that we wear in heaven. I don't think that's what it's referring to. I think it's meaning the culmination is life eternal. The culmination of becoming a born-again Christian, living a faithful life, you are the culmination, the crown of that, the, the end of that is this wonderful eternal life. And so the pseudoness, how much, what can you get better than that? Eternal life. And then finally, a loving comfort. Not only a limited circumstance and a lavish compensation, but finally, a loving comfort. God is forearming us. Verse 11 He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Be comforted. If you have an ear, hear. I want you to really listen. Now, It's as though John is saying, God spoke it, the Holy Spirit gave it to me, a messenger has delivered it to the pastor. Listen to what the pastor is telling you, because this is from the voice of God, and he's telling you that he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You'd say, well, how do I overcome? I want to be an overcomer. Well, thank God that's done for us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in the gospel. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. The day that you got born again, you overcame the devil. The day that you said yes to Christ, you overcame the world. The day that you became a born-again Christian, you overcame the flesh. The flesh has no power over you. And you are a true believer. And because of that, God says, no second death for you. What? Second death? What do you mean second death? Well, there are two deaths, just like there's two births. There's a physical birth, but there's a spiritual birth. And there's two deaths. There's a physical death, but there is a spiritual death. And God is saying, if you overcome By becoming a born-again Christian, by accepting Christ as Savior, you overcome the devil, you overcome the world. And because of that, there's no second death for you. Be excited about that. Be joyful. And even though you're going through so much trouble, be faithful unto death. I share this as we conclude this morning. A dear woman was sharing her Christian testimony at a meeting. She had gone up in years. and She said, when I was a child, I had contracted polio, and it was very disfiguring to me, and it uh, was such a burden for me growing up. She said, my mother would leave me in Sunday school, and I would faithfully try to be there and read my Bible and be a good girl in Sunday school and church But she said, I would always ask my mom if I could wear her locket while I was in Sunday school. My mom thought that I just liked the locket, but she said that really wasn't it at all. She said, I asked for that locket because I knew that I wasn't worth coming back for but I knew she'd come back for her locket. She said, with my misjudged mind, I didn't realize how valuable I was to my mom. As I read that story, I just had to think about how many times we've thought the same thing. You know, We're trying to be faithful to Sunday school, faithful to church, and faithful reading our Bible. And yet, I think many times we feel like, is my valuable to God? And do I, does God even know what I'm doing? If God care what I'm doing? And what about if I'm even faithful to death? Well, I remind each of us that God says this Himself, He's coming back. He's coming back for each one of us. And He knows us. And He has got for us a crown of life. And He said, I've got something so special for you. Don't give up, my friend. I'm coming back for you. And I'm glad that He is. Jesus is watching. Jesus is watching. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.